Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. How can we make sure that our missions efforts are doing good and not harm? We'll talk about that and more with Gina Thomas, author of A Smoldering Wick. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 161. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. All right, let's get started. Today, I am really excited to have Gina Thomas with me. Well, with me on Skype. Gina and her family were missionaries in northern Mexico for about four years, and she's now the recent author of a new book called A Smoldering Wick. And I think this is a really timely conversation. Over the last couple of months, I've had several conversations about short-term missions and about the about approaching them with a right heart and in a right manner. And there's a lot of stuff floating around in Christian circles and all over the internet about how to best approach this. And that is exactly what her book is going to help us do. It helps provide a framework to understand and then some practical tools for individuals and churches who want to improve and deepen what they're doing. So Gina, it's a mouthful, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And it's great to have you. You know, as I was reading your book, it was a lot. It's divided up in a couple of sections. It was a lot to digest. I read it very quickly. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But my first question, the thing I'm wondering is, you spent about four years in Mexico. What did you do while you were there? Yeah, so my husband and I, we moved there when we were seven months married, which I wouldn't suggest anybody does. But um, (laughs) We, we did a lot of things there. We taught English. My husband taught PE. And after about six or seven months of doing that, we were just really kind of at, at, at our wits end trying to figure out what we should be doing there because we felt like what we were doing was not what we were supposed to be doing. And so we began to, to try to research and figure out some different ideas and thoughts that we wanted to do and ended up after a series of events Feeling the stirring of the Lord to start a coffee shop ministry where a lot of international rock climbers go right. It was a town right next to where we were living. Mm. And we wanted to find a place and, and build a place that was a bridge between those international rock climbers and the native locals there. So that is what we did. We drank a lot of coffee, <laughs> way too much, actually. We got addicted. And we did a, we did quite a bit of climbing. I, I would say I actually probably did more belaying than I did climbing mm-hmm. with a lot of the youth, the Mexican youth that we took climbing. So my neck was kind of in the up position for a very long time while we were in Mexico. But it was a lot of fun. We, we got to show them what was right there in front of them that they had never experienced before. They knew about it. But really, the, the mountain was kind of for the international rock climbers. So that's what we did. Wow, that's that's cool. And I guess you know what. As I'm thinking about this, you said that what you were doing didn't seem 
like what you're supposed to continue doing. And then you moved in this other direction with the coffee shop and with the rock climbing. What kind of pointed you in that direction? It was actually several things. One big thing was that we we took a trip to southern Mexico and visited someone who was doing some sustainable development work down there. And we thought that that was going to be what we were supposed to do, that we were going to move from northern Mexico to southern Mexico and do what he was doing with him. But one of the things he said when we were there was, okay, well, you're going to have to build up connections and contacts once you get here, and that's going to take a while. Mm. And so we thought, what if we just do that where we already are and figure out a better way to feel a little bit more like we're, we're doing what we need to be doing and, and stay where we're at. So we decided to stay. And one of the biggest things that we wanted to do was connect rock climbing with the local Mexicans. And there really wasn't a place to do that. So most of the rock climbers would stay at the base of the mountain and barely ever come into town and experience Mexican life. And we really wanted to build a place that was alcohol-free, that would allow the two groups to mingle and meet and exchange cultures and lifestyles and stories and enjoy each other's company. And so the coffee shop was birthed from that. Okay. And then what brought you back into the U.S.? Yeah, there was a couple of different reasons that we came back to the States. One of the biggest ones was that I was in the midst of grad school. I started grad school when we were down there. It was a two-year program, and I think I had about six months left. And we we knew at the end of that program I was going to have to start paying back some of that grad school student loan. So that was a big thing. And we, we really didn't make much money at all while we were there. So that wasn't really an option. And then in addition, our son was two and a half years old at the time. And most of his interaction with family was through a screen. Mm. And we really wanted it to be a little bit more personal and wanted him to grow up around family some. So we, we felt like it was time to come back. Wow. So I, I know from your book that you faced quite a number of challenges while you were in Mexico, and I know that you highlighted a few of them. Would you mind sharing with us maybe just one of the times where you really had to walk in faith and, and then share with us how God kind of worked through that time? Yeah. One of the times that really sticks out for me personally is there was, and I don't even know if I write about this in the book, but there was our, our money was so tight at first, partially because we thought that my husband was going to get a job as a rock climbing guide. Mm. So we didn't raise a lot of support going down. So our, our money was really, really tight. That fell through and we had to do a lot of support raising from the field. Oh, another thing I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, I think the story that that will forever stick in my head is that there was one particular woman in the church who was constantly telling us to come over to her house and eat supper. Um, she uh, just about every week she would be like, "You got to come over. You got to come over." And she had stopped for a little while, and we were like, "Okay, we know that we need to." Well, well, that one Sunday morning before we even got to church, I looked at, around at what we had, and we had no money, and we had nothing on our shelves to eat, and. I was like, okay, Lord, you have to show up. I don't know what to do. I mean, we can skip a meal if we need to. I really don't know what to do. And that woman came up to us and she said, today you are coming to eat at my house. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a beautiful God moment. So you, you mentioned that you were raising support from the field. I've heard that's incredibly difficult. How did you, how did you approach that? We sent out emails <laughs> to, fa- to family and friends and said, this is this is not really where, you know, our plan wasn't really working out. And a couple of churches that we had close connections to, we emailed as well. And thankfully, it, where we were, and we weren't working under a missions agency, so we didn't have to raise very, very much. It was between 700 and 1,000 a month. So mm. 
you know, it wasn't a huge amount. It certainly felt like a huge amount at times, but, um, yeah. And we had some really good friends and family who helped us out a lot. As you think about your life and your ministry, is there a meaningful quote or perhaps a scripture that's been really foundational in what you do and how you do it? Yeah, the me personally, my I would say that that one of my life verses is from Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, where mm-hmm. Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And that word righteousness there, when you look at the Greek word, and if you look in the Hebrew version of that, actually is the word justice. And so those who hunger and thirst for justice will be satisfied. And that's really, I've had that on my heart even before marriage, even before Mexico. And it's really just opened up all of this. This whole book is about justice and really understanding what that means and what the Bible is talking about when it says justice. Well, that, that's good. And, and when you think about your, your life and the, all of the different times of transition, is there anything that you would have done differently? Um, <laughs> I recently heard somebody say something to the effect of that they, they have no regrets, they just have sorrow. <laughs> and <laughs> I think I'm in that boat as well. There's definitely a lot of things that I, I would have done differently Probably one of the biggest things that, you know, well, there's a couple of things that I mentioned, uh, don't get married and then go to move on the mission field in seven <laughs> yeah. months. But I think the big transition, so the transition part of this question is probably the pertinent part for me, because when we were first talking about coming back to the States, our local pastor there, Pastor David, had told us, he said, I hope that you have a vision that you're going into and not mm. just leaving here. And that stuck with me. But at that point in time, when we heard it, we, the ball was kind of already rolling towards us coming back home, but we really didn't have a vision for coming back home. In the past two and a half years, we have been struggling to figure out exactly what that vision looks like. And I think that if I were to give advice to someone else who's doing this or who's coming off the field, my advice would be to prepare so that you are able to walk into that next vision instead of just leaving just to leave. If wow. That, makes sense. that is so good. I've, I've heard so many people who, at, when they reach the point of retirement, they have similar struggles where for their entire lives, for 30 or 40 years, they've been doing something and they're done with that and they don't have a vision for what comes next. And that's a real big challenge. I, I, I'm not even sure what question to follow that up with because <laughs> that I, my mind is just blown right now. As I'm thinking about all of this, I guess where I would like to go is obviously God has sustained you through these times, but yeah. a lot of times God uses the things that we do in our personal devotion or our, our habits to do that. Do you have anything that you do regularly that you believe contributes to what God's done? Okay, so the way, when I first saw that question, it kind of blew my mind a bit, I, I, messing with my theology. I think it still <laughs> is a little bit, which is a good thing. I, I actually really love it when things mess with my theology. But yeah, I, now I, I think I understand a little bit better the, the concept of sustainment. So yeah, I would say that that it it is a personal relationship with him that is sustaining us and has, and just the knowledge that he is, he is all knowing and he is all powerful. And so he knows what's about to happen. And he knows that we were about to walk into, you know, a long time of, of learning poverty in the United States and he's all powerful. So he has the capability to send rain down a bunch of money on us, but he chose not to do that. And so to trust in those moments, and even as a parent now to think about some of that things in reverse with my children Mm. and to think, 
okay, there are moments where I could totally give my son everything he's asking me for, but is that the best thing to do in that moment? Is it going to teach him the character that he needs to have for when he does go out in the world without me? Yeah. And most of the time the answer is no. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it's not so much that, you know, God is hoarding re- resources away from me. It's he's building character in me that I can only build if he does not give me everything that I ask him in the moment I do. Wow, that that's good. And that as a parent, that is so hard because I know, at least for me, I always want to give my kids everything that they want. Even, even when I know it's bad for them, there's a part of me that wants to give it to them just because I know that they want it. I don't know. Is it the same for you? It is. It is. And, and actually, I, I really have to check myself. And one of the things, and I think even the, the When Helping Hurts book talks about don't do for others what they can do for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you if you really want a person to develop, whether you're talking about economic development or spiritual development or whatever, you have to let them learn how to develop on their own. And sometimes that's a really hard process and it's way easier to just do it for them. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's way easier for me to just tie my kid's shoes than for him to learn how to tie them himself. There will come a time when he needs to not lean on me to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's good. With that, we're going to go ahead and take our first break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to shift our focus a little bit more toward your book. Hey, Engaging Missions listeners, this is Jim Baker from episode 119. Thank you so much for being a faithful listener to this show. Brian has been a huge encouragement to me personally and to my podcast, Doing Ministry Well. After a long hiatus, we finally have some new episodes up, and we'd love it if you check it out over at doingministrywell.com. All right, we're back with Gina. We just finished talking about some amazing stuff. In particular, one of the things I struggle with, whether or not I should help my kids put on their shoes and tie them too. It's a, it's a real struggle, people. It really is sometimes, especially when the school buses come. And I understand that. Now, Gina, as we shift our focus more towards your book, the first thing I'm wondering is, who's the book for? Who did you write it for? That is actually a very difficult question to answer, which is surprising. As an author, you would think that people would know who they wrote their book for. But it's, Mm. it's something that I have to answer constantly to myself and to you, to those around me and make sure that I'm reaching the audience that I'm trying to. And I think what I've decided is that the book is really written for people who are sitting in the pews in the American church. It's definitely for the American church. Mm. And I really do think that it's for the people who are nominally involved in short-term missions or beyond that, maybe someone who's a short-term missions leader. Um, Maybe it's a 16 year old who's interested in going on a short-term missions trip. And that's really why I broke it down into three to the three different categories was because I wanted to be able to have a resource that someone who just vaguely wants to know about short-term missions can open it up to certain sections and say, oh, okay, this is what this is about. And also someone who is really interested in making short-term missions better and maybe who leads trips regularly and sees things that they want to change can say, wow, this is a great resource and I I can really utilize it. That's good. Would you mind sharing with us what those three sections, the three big categories are? Sure. It's theology, theory, and then practice. And so the concept was I need to make sure that I understand what the theology is behind this book, because when we talk about, and if you, if you've read When Helping Hurts or any, any kind of books like that, when you talk about doing harm in short-term missions or missions in general, 
the the real question in my mind, and maybe it's just me because I I am geared in that way. But why why are what are the roots to the branches that are creating this? And if we don't acknowledge the roots, if we don't figure out what our theology is, then we're going to continue to do the same thing, whether we call it an apple tree or an orange tree or whatever. If we don't know what roots they are, they're going to continue to produce the same fruit. Okay, that's good. And I'm glad that you mentioned When Helping Hurts. I know that there are a number of books and articles out out that address some of these kinds of things. What was it that prompted you specifically to write A Smoldering Wick now? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, I think one of the things is just that life allowed it. I was, you know, a stay-at-home mom, and we can maybe talk about some more of that difficulty in a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My wife would but, love to hear that conversation. <laughs> yeah, but being a stay-at-home mom, I, I had time to do it. I had been both my husband and I have have kind of struggled with the job situation since we've been home and. It turned out after getting pregnant with my second child that we decided it just wasn't worth me going to work for a $10, $10 an hour mm-hmm. if we were going to have somebody watch our children. So it was basically me working for someone to watch the kids. And so just understanding that this is a new phase of life and kind of really taking it how I can. And I mm-hmm. love to process things and love to have deep conversations. And so during a day when I get to talk all day long with my three-year-old, but not with, I don't know, another 30-year-old, it's a little <laughs> bit difficult to handle. So, and, and also just that it was a great way for me personally to process our return to the United States, all the reverse culture shock that we've been going through and maybe are still going through and don't even know. But it, it's very important for me and always has been for me to be able to write out some of my thoughts to be able to really understand where I'm at and what I need to be doing better. Okay. Yeah. And you know, when, when I was reading the book, there was one of the quotes and I'm, I'll read the quote for you, but it really, to me, it just kind of cut me off at the knees a little bit. And so I'll share kind of what the quote is, and then I'll ask you to lay a little, a little bit more foundation for us. So the quote here okay. is what I've laid out here is a practical guide to carry out missions work throughout the lens of justice rather than charity. My goal is not that everyone does missions the same way. My desire is to see strong, authentic relationships built through short-term missions between sending and receiving churches. Now, part of what really struck me was this idea of charity as opposed to justice. And I think that's one of the things that at least for me as a person within the American church can be a real challenge. Can you share with us a little bit more about the difference between justice and charity? Yeah, this is actually where the the book was birthed. So uh, one of my classes in grad school was um, on the theology of poverty. And in that class, I, I was doing some research and looking through trying to find different passages in the Bible with the word charity in it. And as I started to look into the original language, I don't know very much about, let me just tell you, I don't know much <laughs> about Hebrew or about Greek, but I, I'm very interested in it. And as I looked through trying to find more about charity, I found that the the word charity as we know it today is not found in the Bible. There, There's four different words in Hebrew, if you go to the Old Testament, that we, when you look up the word charity on a Bible engine search, mm. those four different words in Hebrew that will come up as the word charity are, two of them are from the, the base of the word that is justice, and then one of them is donation and the other one is a gift. And so the word charity, as we know charity today, as in I'm going to give you something that I have that you don't have for the sake of whatever, X, Y, and Z, that that's not really in the Bible. Mm. 
so that really shook me and I was just bewildered by that concept. And so then I started looking up those words that were charity were my concept of charity. And the biggest one is, is that one Pizzatico, which in Hebrew means a life of right relationships. And that's where justice stems from. So Tim Keller in one of his books talks about two words, the two Hebrew words for justice. And one of them is that Tizatika word, which is a life of right relationship. And then the other one is the word mishpat, which is uh, giving someone what is due them. And so when you put those two things together, you get our concept of social justice that we know of today. And really the whole Old Testament is just full of those words. And then when you look in the New Testament where there is the word charity, it's not, again, it's not the same. And, and this is assuming that you're not translating the word charity for the word love, which is like the King James version mm-hmm. does that. So beyond that, it's not, it's not there. And so what I really found in this concept is that charity is, it, it's a power play and, and really it's, it's unbalanced. Whereas justice, right relationship means that two people are on the same plane. And so the more I think about charity and the more that some of the discussion groups that I held for school talking to different people about their perceptions of charity. And then you read books like Bob Lupton and Toxic Charity, and you kind of see what the basis for all of the, these issues are. And, and I really believe that it is just a one-sided issue when it comes to the word charity. And then it's two-sided balance when we, mm-hmm. when we talk about the word justice. So you've mentioned quite a bit about how charity can can do some harm and how it's not justice. One of the one of the things you shared in the book was that all injustices start with dehumanization. What are some of the ways that well-meaning people dehumanize others and what can we do to be better? Yeah, really the biggest I think one of the biggest themes that I think comes throughout the book is this concept of a pedestal, right? So mm-hmm. if if you're if you have charity, if you want to give in a charitable way to someone, then really you're you're standing on a pedestal and you're saying, I have something that this person doesn't have and they need it. I have it and they need it. And that really is, I feel like that's kind of the start of dehumanization. And anytime we step up on a pedestal and say, I as a human being am better than you as a human being, then you're dehumanizing that person. Mm. You're either saying that you're a God or you're sometimes it can go either way. You can say this person is a God and I'm not, or you can say this person is a demon and I'm not right. Mm-hmm. So any, any of those small little instances, you know, it, it happens unconsciously, but that's really where it starts and depriving anyone of human quality is, is where dehumanization begins. And I think the biggest way practically for us, especially in short term missions to prevent ourselves from doing that is to simply say one thing, and that is I am rich and I am poor. I am both of those things. And so is this other person that I'm supposedly giving to or donating to. They are also rich and they are also poor. And while I might see their poverty because it's very visual, I don't necessarily see their richness. So I need to figure out what that is because it's there. That, that's good. And, you know, as I'm thinking about this, one of the things that struck me, and I'm just going to float this by you, I'd not thought of it before, and I'm going to ask you to give me a little bit of input. As yeah. you're sharing that, I'm thinking, you know, maybe part of the problem is that I think that my resources are actually mine. And so I could easily think that I'm something or that I that I literally have something that this other person needs, when in all honesty, God has something that this other person needs, and I might be the person he's going to use to give that. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really great thought process because we are conduits. If we are not the saviors, we're not the Christ figure. We are the conduit of him. And when we 
decide that we are more than that. I think mm. that's where, where our issues come. So, so let's take it and, and make it a little bit more practical now, because you, you do have a very, very practical section in the book. And one of the things you mentioned was that it's really important to properly screen people before a short-term work, that you want to screen, screen them for not only attitude, but also aptitude. Can you share a little bit about why that's important and maybe one or two tips for how to screen effectively? Sure. I think that the deeper I, I grow in my Christian walk, and I have been a Christian as long as I can remember, (laughs) (laughs) I am starting to see more and more, maybe, maybe it's just adult life. I'm not sure, but the gospel is in our attitudes. Mm. If it's nowhere else, it's there. And if we don't live it out in how we respond to things, then we don't live out the gospel. And so when you, when you travel to another country and you, you are in that stance or that, or, or even another community, but you are the ambassador for Christ, right? In that in that community, you have to recognize this that your attitude is everything because attitudes they're universal. People can tell what your attitude is even if they have no clue what language you're speaking. Mm. And so I think that that is very very important to understand that our attitudes are potentially more effective or negatively affecting the gospel than what we actually do. And then when it comes to aptitude, <laughs> Um, if you want to send, you know, your 10 youth kids to go paint a house in Mexico, right. But they don't know how to paint and they don't care if they get paint everywhere and you would never have them paint your own house. Then essentially you are, you are sacrificing the dignity of that person whose house is being painted Mm. because you would never have that done here, but you're going to do it there. So that's not justice. That's that's really where that life of right relationship comes in. And if you have a long, like let's say a lifetime relationship with the person whose house was painted, eventually they'll probably tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you're only there for 10 days, they're going to say, okay, thank you. And then maybe when you leave, if they're honest with themselves, they'll probably complain about the fact that those kids got paint everywhere and now they have to clean it all up. And so I think it's just really important. And in addition, let's think about there's probably 20 professional painters in the town that you went to. And it would be very dignifying to pay those people for a job that they're worth. It's, it's attached to their worth and, and they would do it way better. So I think it's very important. And so the practical two really practical things for that is have an application for people going on short-term missions. And if you go to my website, there's a free one there that you can download and, and have an interview because an application is not going to show attitude, but it is going to show aptitude and an interview. Hopefully, hopefully you already know who this person is and you know, their attitude and you know, their aptitude. And, and again, that's where that life of right right relationship comes in. If you have right relationship with the people who are going on a short-term missions team, these are things that you won't even necessarily have to worry about as long as you can screen them. Yeah, that, that's really good. And you totally nailed me. There is no reason I should ever be involved in a trip that involves any kind of building, or at least the expectation that I would be involved in. There are other things that I'm good at, right? But if you want a wall that's hung straight, you don't want this boy doing it. And I understand that. But And, and I just kind of want to take this a little step further, though, because that can become challenging for, for somebody like me. If I really want to go on a short-term trip, and really make an impact, but I don't have any of the skills that are needed. How, how can I move forward? 
Well, I think, again, that goes into the you're rich and you are poor and maybe what you think are skills that you don't need. Everyone has relationship building skills. And again, life of right relationship, that's what short term missions is really about building relationships. And if that's, you know, that's kind of a harder thing to quantify, but hanging out with people and learning their their life and learning their lifestyle and getting to know them and building a long term relationship with them. That's what it's all about. And so I think every single person has that capability to do that. Well, that, that's good. So I, I think we'll have maybe just one more question, and I want to make it personal for people. So we live in a selfie-driven society. We live in a marketing society. We live in a success-driven, numbers-hungry place where very often it would seem like we could do more harm than good when we share about our missions work or, well, frankly, just about anything. You called it marketing in your book, which I think is was pretty accurate, whether it's done well or not. But you also said that practically speaking, successful marketing should, one, not dehumanize people, two, focus on the whole picture, three, not focus on quick fixes, four, not oversimplify, and five, point to Christ. Could you maybe pick one of those and share why it's important and one way we as the bride of Christ can move closer to that ideal? Sure. The concept of focusing on the whole picture, I think, is probably my favorite of those that I've listed. And, and I say that because I uh, did some research on a particular instance that happened in Uganda. And and you can read all about it in, in the book. But for me, that was a very personal thing for me because I started to see a lot of other things through that same light. And that the, ask, the, the problem was with that particular instance is that the marketers, quote unquote, were sharing half of the story. They never got all of the voices involved. And now that now, as I think through some of these things, and I think through my own life, even in on my Twitter feed or on Facebook, whatever, is I'm starting to see and starting to realize and be more aware of, am I showing the whole picture? So especially when it comes to missions. So if you're a long-term missionary and you have to, you know, give the data, give the numbers mm-hmm. or share at a, at a church it's twofold. So the, the people who are telling the story think that the people who are listening to the story don't want to hear the negative stuff. So they don't say it. And the people who are listening to the story have been so accustomed to only hearing the positive things that they don't want to hear the negative. And I think it's so important that we have a good mixture of both. And that's really, that's something that has to be personal. It has to be done by those who are listening and by those who are telling stories. And you, you know, people who their real life looks nothing like their social media life. (laughs) And, that's, I mean, that is, that is the sin of, of our generation, I think, is that we are inauthentic without even realizing it most of the times. And so even on Facebook, when I would get on Facebook as a missionary and say certain things that were happening, I had to make sure that that was balanced because, because it's not the whole picture. And one of the, one of the examples that I give is if, if you were to take a horrible picture of me every single day of, uh, every time I had a bad day, a mm-hmm. bad hair day and put all that up on my Facebook profile, and that's who I am. Well, that's a piece of who I am, but that's not everything that I am. I don't always have big zits, and I don't always have bad hair days, but that certainly happens, and it's important to see the whole picture of a human being, again, not dehumanizing us. 
that's good. So just tonight before we started recording, I posted something about how I was excited to be talking to you when we were recording this. But what I didn't post was a picture of my recording studio that happens to also be my kid's playroom with a piece of carpet on the wall (laughs) so that I don't have a lot of sound and all that stuff. That sounds like the kind of thing that you're talking about. We're not not trying to paint a super great picture, but at the same time, how, how do we balance that out? Because there's a certain element of sharing that's actually not appropriate for those kinds of forums. Right. And I think that's the tricky thing about vulnerability is that there's certain spaces that allow you to be vulnerable. And and one of those things is just the concept of having an accountability partner. There are things Mm -hmm. that you share with that person that are much deeper than, than difficulties and things that you share with someone on Facebook. But there is this level of let's be real. Like, let's show the whole picture. Let's show that it's also your kid's bedroom. And to be honest, that gains more credibility with me because my, my daughter was living in the living room for six months of her life, you know? So like, I I think that we're selling ourselves short by attempting to sell ourselves bigger than we really are. Wow. That, that's a good quote. That one right there, that should stick in my heart that we're selling ourselves short when we try to sell ourselves bigger than we are. Now, Gina, we are going to need to take one more quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus more toward the listeners. Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. Uh, but you meet these people and they say, can you help me? Do you have medicine? Um, and, and we say, well, we have a story about a creator uh, who created the world and he loves you. And from there, we, we, we present a very short gospel presentation. And uh, many times we see encounters, um, displays of God's power. Uh, sometimes there are people who are healed. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes sick people come to churches. So that, So there are many different ways but for the most part we enter into the field of faith uh, we look for people that god's prepared we call them people of peace and then from those from those individuals um, um, they reach their families uh, they reach their villages and we actually have a plan of following up with different leaders and um, i think you've mentioned it before we actually follow um, this process called training for trainers mm. and it's a very simple uh, reproducible way of actually training leaders to actually train others and we're looking at generational growth amongst the sunny people. So just to summarize, we've now have, uh, we've seen over 250 sunny believers, and there are probably 14 different village churches wow. um, that are mixed, some with sunny, some with different ethnic groups, but for the most part, that's been within the last three years. If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. All right, we're back with Gina Thomas. This has been a delightful conversation so far, but we've got some more to share with you because we're going to turn our focus more toward you as the listener. So Gina, if somebody's listening right now and they're just they're overwhelmed by the magnitude of trying to pursue justice and missions work and they don't know what to do next, how would you encourage them? Yeah, I think if they're overwhelmed, uh, welcome to the club. <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> justice work really is overwhelming. And, and I think the reason it's so overwhelming is because like the gospel is very messy. It's mm. not, there's no clear cut answers. There's no, this is definitely what's going to happen if you do this because relationships are like that. And so when we talk about justice in light of relationships, there's not always going to be the same answer to the same problem. 
But I think the step one would be to chop off the section of justice work in missions work, right? So mm. just let's just focus on justice first. And I think the way to do that is what does justice look like in your own life where you're at right now? Are you living in right relationship with God? Are you living in right relationship with your spouse, with your family, and with your neighbors? Because if you're not, then let's not even go to the mission fields. Let's let's work on the one that's right here. And really, I know it's cliche to say that there's a mission field everywhere we go, but I really truly believe that. And I think that, that it's important that we focus on where we're at right now. God has you there for a reason, and we got to make the most with what we've got. Wow, you may have just given away the answer to the next question as well. What would you say with somebody who's called into the marketplace, but they're starting to wonder if what they're doing really does matter in the kingdom? Yeah, the... Definitely what you're doing matters in the kingdom. Absolutely. Again, like I said earlier, it's all about attitude. It's so much more about attitude than it is about what we're doing. And so if you can clean toilets with a good attitude, if you can sing the happy song while you're cleaning toilets, <laughs> I think that I think that God's kingdom is being brought to earth in that moment. I think that's just as much justice as someone who is hiding from the bad guys because they're trying to chase down some sex traffickers. I, I mean, I really do believe that. I know that's hard to, to really wrap your brain around, but there's so many different ways in which the kingdom of God can come to earth. And I think a lot of it happens more so through our attitude than through anything else. And really, there is no dichotomy between what is secular and what is holy, in my mind. What our attitudes will repel people or they'll bring people into the kingdom more than what we're doing if we're crunching numbers or if we're washing dishes all day long. And I think to just be reminded that relationships are more important than, than tasks, no matter what. It's all about life of right relationships. What would you share with somebody who's beginning to realize that their neighbors or their coworkers or the people they see in the store are people from other religions or other places where maybe just a few years ago we thought that that was just missionary territory? Yeah, one of the most beautiful things about our time in Mexico is that where we were, people came from all over the world specifically there to go climbing. And really, when you think about the United States of America, it's very much the same. People from all over the world are right here. And Matthew Sorens, he's from World Relief. He's just written a book about refugees. And he, one of the quotes that he said recently, I was listening to something he was talking, and he said, the church in the U.S. has been focused for a long time on sending people to the ends of the earth. Mm. And certainly there's a place for that. But I think we've also missed out on something profound that God is doing in sending the nations to our own community. Communities. And really, when you think about missions, when you think about long-term missions, there's so much, it takes so much just to get integrated into a culture. And when you're here and people from other cultures are coming to you, you already know your own culture. So like that barrier is completely gone. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Now you just have to look, okay, how can I get into some form of relationship with these people? And some of the statistics that Matthew was talking about were really scary, actually, that something like 60% of Christians have never spoken to other people of other faith and things like that, where you're just like, that's really important that we do that and that we recognize the minefield is right here. Yeah. Is there maybe a, an, a resource or a tool that you'd recommend for our listeners? Especially in regards to short-term missions, there's a really amazing book called Walking with the Poor by Bryant Myers, and I would say that it's absolutely my favorite book on missions. It's, it can be a little technical and get a little deep at, at times and moments, but it's really beautiful, just this concept of, of walking with people rather than handing out or doing things for 
It's a really beautiful book. Okay. And speaking of books, you have one as well. Where can people find that book? They can find it at Amazon or they can go to my website and buy it right from me. Okay. And for those of you who are listening, we will make sure that this is all linked up in the show notes, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash Gina Thomas. If you're interested, I would recommend that you check out the book. It's a deep book. It's got a lot of stuff in there, a lot to process, a lot I'm still working through. So I, I do recommend that. Now, Gina, we're just about done. Would you share with us maybe one last piece of advice and a good way for people to connect with you? Yeah. One last piece of advice. If you're always the teacher, you'll stop living much sooner than if you're always a student. And then, yeah, how you can connect to me, GinaThomas.com is probably the best way. It's got all of my information there. That's great. Gina, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I really appreciate your time and your generosity. Thank you so much. I appreciate yours as well. Make sure that you come back next week when we'll be hearing from Tobias about what God's doing with a redeemed former gangbanger in Southeast Asia. If you want to make sure that you don't miss that episode, the best way to do that is to subscribe using your favorite podcast app at engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. And if you enjoyed this or know somebody who would benefit from it, please help us spread the word. Your recommendation can help people connect with the resources they need to be equipped, inspired, and challenged. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.